This is the Third Act Podcast, shining a spotlight on individuals, charities, and small business owners suffering from illness, economic shutdown, or lack of support and funding. Meaningful conversations that generate compassion and financial support from listeners compelled to join us on this journey to improve the lives of others. I'm gonna dance with the stranger. I'm gonna enjoy your show. I'm gonna learn to forget and really let it go. And most of all, I wanna shine a light on good and look to give back. And that's what I'll do with my third, third act. And now your host, Roger Steed. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Third Act Podcast. It is my pleasure to share some time today with another great guest. I am fortunate to have many great friends like the Reverend Kate Thornson, who share great insights into individuals that are making a difference in our communities. Today, I share the mic with a wonderful individual that is making a difference with our youth and advocating for children facing unbelievable challenges in our legal system. In Wayne County, Michigan, we have a terrific organization that is providing a broad spectrum of services that allows our children to have a fighting chance for a quality life. My guest today is Linda McGee, co-executive director of the Michigan Children's Law Center, who is willing to share her experiences and help educate us about what we can do to help our youth. Linda was raised and educated in Detroit. She aspired to become a writer, which I think is really cool, but always loved helping children. After graduating from the University of Michigan, Linda taught language arts in the Detroit public school system. Although challenging, she loved educating and helping children through that experience. After that time, Linda decided to attend Wayne State University Law School, and she says she happened upon a job posting for a position as an intern with the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office in the Juvenile Court. She worked there four years in the Prosecutor's Office, gaining insight on the plight of young people in the court system, and decided to start a nonprofit called the ARC Nonviolence Program to help children achieve their goals. Linda managed to direct the ARC even after being recruited to the Michigan Children's Law Center. And after 15 years, she closed the doors on the ARC to accept the position of co-executive director of what I call the MCLC. Linda, importantly, has earned her certification as a child welfare law specialist and was appointed as the Michigan State Coordinator by the National Association of Counsel for Children. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Linda to the podcast and say thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Linda. Oh, you are welcome. It is certainly my pleasure. Welcome on this rainy Friday in Detroit. Right. <laughs> Great to hear your voice. Let's get into the fine work that your organization is doing in broad terms. Could you please share with our audience 
what the MCLC does and what are the major services that it provides to children? Okay, for starters, we represent children in foster care and juvenile justice cases. And our organization, which has existed since 1994, has provided these services to the court in several courtrooms. And when we when I say we represent children who are in foster care and uh, juvenile justice, a lot of people don't really know what that means, but they may have heard the term LGAL, yes. which is short for gar- lawyer guardian ad litem. So we have uh, clients who range in age from zero to 21 years old. Okay. But most of us, most of the attorneys, we have 12 attorneys working with us right now. We've had as many as 32 attorneys. Wow. But right now with the courtrooms that we're in, we represent the kids inside of the courtroom and we also have we need to help them outside of the courtroom yes and a lot of that involves visiting with them seeing how they're doing in school seeing what they're doing in the community and trying to bring different organizations or professions together to help that one our one client our 12 attorneys represent many clients so sometimes it can be an overwhelming task oh yeah because we want to make sure each one of our clients is okay so that's our primary focus is the representation inside of the courtroom which also involves the community our organization started an education advocacy unit yes and Judy New who is one of our attorneys yes. a fabulous attorney she and Fred Gruber the original one of the original directors She and Fred Gruber built the education advocacy unit because what we found, Roger, in the court system is that a lot of the kids who are there, at least on the juvenile justice, have deficiencies as far as their education. And it could be because they weren't nurtured educationally or they need an IEP and haven't received one or they have an IEP, individual uh, education plan through the school. Yes. And they aren't receiving the services that they are entitled to. So what Judy found was that, okay, until we can get these young people the proper education services, it's going to be hard to keep them out of the juvenile court. So we built that years ago, several years ago, and I'm really proud to say that the court saw what we did and they adopted that. They incorporated that into the fabric of the Wayne County Juvenile Court System. So we're really proud of that. And the third, we have three main things that we do, but the third is the the aging out unit. And that's where we advocate for young people who are in foster care that are older. And we try to find resources and services in the community and with organizations within the court system that'll help the ones who are aging out, not age out into poverty, not age out into homelessness, not age out into the criminal justice system or substance abuse, we want our clients to be okay. And a lot of times what happens when young people are taken out of their homes, they're really fought their foster children, but they're seen as juvenile justice children. And there is a clear distinction between the two. One is accused, for, for your listeners who don't know, one is accused of committing some type of offense that if they were an adult, it would be a criminal offense. The other, the foster child in the child welfare system is basically taken out of their homes because there has been an allegation of abuse or neglect within the home and they need some services. The family needs services so the child can go back home. And sometimes the child is not able to go back home and they end up aging out. And then as they get older, people don't really want to help. Go ahead. I want to talk about all three of these, my emphasis from the standpoint of the MCLC. But the first thing that crossed my mind when I talked to you this week and also went through all the material on the website was the massive 
time-consuming responsibility that each of your attorneys take on when they take on a case. It's just, I don't yes. know, it's mind-boggling to me. How do you do that? You know what? <laughs> it's funny you should ask that because when I started with MCLC um, in 2007, I entered, I joined an organization that was filled with compassionate people. So the attorneys who work with us take it on themselves. They find the resources. They find the education. We are really super blessed to live in a, a community in Wayne County and the state of Michigan that offers the, they, we have a lot of trainings that are offered to us and our attorneys go through the trainings. The court has a lot of opportunities for training so that we always know what the latest information is that will help our clients. Of course, most of it is volunteer. We're required to do some things, but our attorneys go over and beyond what's required of them so that they can get themselves trained. And of course, uh, my co-executive director, Eleanor Robbier and I, we encourage that and we share the information as well. But really our attorneys, they bring some things to us. <laughs> it's, called, they, it's just a really compassionate group of, young, of, of attorneys who I don't even have the words to describe because you can only look at so many, and I think I shared this with you earlier this week, you can only look at so many uh, autopsies of a one-year-old yep, yep. or x-rays of broken bones on a five-month-old yep. for so long before you just feel like, okay, yep. am I doing a good job? When will it get better? Yep. And we really work together at MCLC to encourage each other. So it's not even really like me and Eleanor have to do a whole lot. Yeah. We encourage each other and we are, we always, before the pandemic, we always had listening ears who, if you had a hard day, you had a tough case, you could come up to our, you could come into our offices and just release <laughs> because we've all been there. We know sure. what a heavy weight that can be. Sure. And people think, you know, people see you as an attorney and they think, oh, everything's wonderful, which I love being an attorney. Our attorneys have been with us for decades. I don't think we have anybody that's been with us long or fewer than five years. Wow. So even though the work, is, it can be stressful, it's rewarding when you see families re reunited and the parents get services or children who need to be adopted. You see them get adopted and you have a family of attorneys yes. who are compassionate and they're willing to go the extra mile to help these clients. Wow. That's incredible. I'm still amazed. Maybe one day I can come down there and take a look at that. That'd be, oh, that'd be awesome. Feel free to judge. And that's the other thing. The judges can make it easy yeah. <laughs> too, because they now, okay, so I'm going to take myself as an example. Yep. I'm assigned to one courtroom with two other attorneys. So I, I have one third of the cases for children. Mm -hmm. And there's a judge who hears everything. I only hear one third <laughs> of the cases. Right. The good ones, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But the judge hears everything. And they still come into the court with a, a good frame of mind, a good temperament. And this is Wayne Juvenile Court. I can't speak for every court. So I don't know how it is everywhere else. But it's that's very helpful, too, that you don't have the stress of having uh, jurists that don't, the referees and the judges who don't understand and are not compassionate. Because in my opinion, if you can't, if you don't have compassion, juvenile court just isn't the right place no, for not, you. No, it's not going to work. No, you're right. No, it, it just doesn't because these are families and this is the system that feeds into all the other systems. But just from that standpoint, these dockets that I read about, the baby docket, drug court, mm -hmm. mental health docket, 
And yes. we're going to talk about the education uh, unit, but how are these separated? Does a judge oversee all of them or how does that kind of work in inside the system, so to speak? So the mental health court, the ju- the stand, which is our drug court docket and our baby courts are all headed by either a judge or a referee. Uh, so for instance, in the drug court, there's a referee and a judge, Karen Braxton. She oversees the entire drug court. She does uh, amazing work with the young people to make sure they don't have a record because they get services. And then our attorneys will represent children who are within the drug court. And I have to say there are other organizations like MCLC who have who represent children. There are five, five groups within the Wayne County Juvenile Court System that represent children. So we don't have all the cases. Okay. Thank goodness, because that would be totally overwhelming. <laughs> but we do have we have a significant amount and that not having all of the cases allows us to do all of the community work yes. that we do. The mental health court is a docket that allows young people who have been diagnosed with some type of mental health issue right. or challenge. It actually doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be anything they're being, they don't even have to be in therapy or anything like that because the mental health court, which is the jurist who has that docket is our presiding judge Edward Joseph. And he has a team, including Deb Nelson. There's a whole, and therapists, probation officers, there's a whole team of people, just like with the drug court. These are teams that wrap, they give wraparound services to the kids so that they don't end up as a part of the criminal justice system sure. when they get older, because nobody ever noticed that they had a mental health issue and it wasn't addressed. And that is, the court is recognized, just like with aging out and the drug court, the court is recognized over the past several years that if we can get nip these issues in the bud, we won't have these, we won't have bigger issues when these children become adults because they're going to grow up. Of course. And then the baby court docket, which is, that is our jurist reverie, Katie, ref, referee rather. Yep. I almost called her reverend, <laughs> but referee Kat, Katie Allen. She does the baby court docket and that docket allows families who don't really have a lot of issues, because of course you get a whole myriad of things that bring kids into the court system, sure. but families who don't have a whole lot of issues, maybe this is their first child or their young parents with a newborn and they left the baby in the car and they shouldn't have, but it had to be a petition that was filed. But the baby court docket is, it was formed a few years ago to address those issues specifically and try to get those kids back those babies back as soon as possible. Sure. But what's interesting is that although it's called baby court docket, if there's more than one child in the home, the baby court docket addresses all of the children. The baby is just going to focus. Okay. There's one child that's the focus, but there are services. And you wouldn't believe, you may, because you may, you've talked to people, yep. but your listeners probably wouldn't believe the enormous amount of services that they're out here to help people, but they don't really know about it. And it's unfortunate that you have to become a part of the court system yeah. in order to know about all these wraparound services that are available. And some, and you don't have to necessarily be in the court system to take advantage of it. That's a, uh, but the court implemented those dockets. Yeah, that's a backwards way to get around to the services. How many cases do you take on, on in a given year? Oh, in a given year? That's or, a really good... And we were, we were pretty slow at the beginning of of COVID. Sure. So I'm going to take 2020 out of it. We would take on about 1500 cases a year. Wow. And some of them, some of them come and go, some of them linger on. 
forever. And this is with 12 attorneys. Yeah, that's amazing. We have a lot more than that before. And we also were responsible for appeals as well. (laughs) So that's not even counting the appeals. That's just in the courtrooms. And with the ones who come that in the case might get dismissed because there's not enough evidence to proceed against either the parents or the child if it's a juvenile justice case. And then we have the ones who come in and the parents are, let's say there's a drug habit in a child welfare foster care case. And they're doing great for seven months and they're preparing to have the children return to them and then they start using again. So that one might take longer. That might be a year and a half because you don't kick drugs. What some people do, they just stop using drugs. And then other people need uh, multiple chances to be able to get the- But seriously, you can be on some cases for a year and a half. Is that right? Yeah, it used to be that you could be on some cases for three years, oh my God. but things have changed yeah. because the state and the court have recognized that's way too long. Yeah, <laughs> We got to get these kids either home yeah. or adopted, but there are some situations that where you, they just need a little bit more help. For another example is if there's a father who's in, a mother or a father who's incarcerated for whatever, some petty crime, they're incarcerated and the child is in foster care. The parent who has responsibility for them isn't doing such a great job at a treatment plan because every most of the parents get treatment plans if it's not a really severe case. Yeah. And they get a treatment plan, the mom or the dad, they fall off the treatment plan and there's a father or mom who's incarcerated, but they're going to get out by the end of the year. Sure. So this is July and they the court whoever the judge or referee is may say, okay, we'll wait five months and see if this person can get, be stable enough to take their child. So those could sometimes on a case by case basis, it might take a little longer than other cases. If you don't mind, ask you to elaborate a little bit more on the education advocacy unit. I know that this is a special program that Judy knew has you highlighted a quarterback. Talk about her and talk about the special things that this unit does, please. It can be a very detailed and involved process. But the basics are that if we have a a client that one of the attorneys is identified as a young person who needs a second look at their education. is an example, if I have a fourth grader or nine-year-old who's been removed from the home and he's my client, he or she is my client, and I'm talking to this client and I'm realizing that there's something that's just not, they're not at the level that they should be, or we get their records if they have records. And we find that the fourth grader is in the second grade or even the third grade, or there's something else that's going on. They've had an IEP in the past, but for whatever reason, the parents haven't updated the IEP. Then I will send a referral to Judy new. And she will determine how far she needs to go with this case. Does she just need to contact the school to get an IEP? I had a grandmother once, Roger, who had a five her five-year-old grandson, and he was in kindergarten, and he she asked for an IEP in the very beginning because he, he wasn't in preschool. So she just wanted to know, like, where is he? Does he need extra services? That kind of thing. Yeah. And the school system never gave it to her until we got Judy involved in March. And that assessment is supposed to happen within 30 days. (laughs) So in a case like that, Judy would contact the school and, hey, she won't use the lawyer card right away, I don't think. (laughs) But she will let them know, hey, I know the law. I know the education law. I know how this is supposed to work. And you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing with this child. Nine times out of 10, once they hear, once the school district hears from a lawyer who knows the law in this area, then they'll go on and get the IEP done. (laughs) And it's unfortunate, again, that you have to be a part of the court system 
to get something like that, despite the many advocacy groups that are out there. So that's a simple case. She may have a situation where the school district knows what they're supposed to do. They know that she's involved. They won't do it. They just refuse to follow the law. Then she has to file a complaint against the school system. And those are a lot more involved and they take a lot more. It takes a lot more expertise in order to file those complaints against the school district. And we try not to get there and, and have everything mediated before then. We also have an intern that works with her because she's just one lawyer sure. and she handles a lot of cases. In fact, I think she has 25 clients. <laughs> and But we have an intern who is helping her with those cases, Anila Bosca. And they're invest, they investigate which cases should go forward with state complaints and which ones we can resolve without that. Wow. That's uh, pretty elaborate. I'm assuming that once they get an idea of the child's predicament, get the IEP going and make it uh, obviously up to date, that they also have to work with transfer and placement too. So how does that come into play? Mm -hmm. Transferring under the law there, even if a child is transferred from one place to another, they should be able to stay in the same school district that they were in, the same exact school, not just the district. And transportation is supposed to be provided to them. And that doesn't always happen, which is another reason we had to create the education advocacy so somebody could contact foster workers and and the school system and let everybody know, look, don't move this child. Just because they're leaving home doesn't mean that they leave their school because that creates a whole nother set of problems. Oh, sure. Judy is really an expert at that. And she that not only does this for our clients with MCLC, well, they're MCLC clients, but she does it in the mental health court. So if a client is in the mental health court, hmm. they have an education advocate. Sure. And that would be Judy. Wow. And so she is working with them with the mental health challenges and with the drug court challenges. Wow. So it keeps her pretty pretty busy. We have a lawyer that advocates for their legal needs. Yep. And then Judy advocates for their education. I needs. got you. That's awesome. And it's very much needed, unfortunately. And it's good you have people like Judy and other attorneys in your organization that are doing that. I just want people to know that Judy also, in fact, you need to interview her because you, you could do a whole yeah. <laughs> interview on education advocacy. But she also wants to educate parents in case anybody's listening to this. Oh, sure. And they want, yeah. they are not a lawyer, but they really want to know how to fight for their child in the school system. And if they don't have a case, they don't want to get a case. Yeah. They don't want their child to get a case so that they can get this help. If they contact MCLC, Judy will probably put them in her parent program or advise them if she has that. Good. I'd love to uh, speak to her in the future and let's, uh, let's make that happen. That would be great. I do have a special uh, interest in the education system for sure. I want to spend a little bit of time just with well, the time we have about this aging out process or problem that we discussed this week, and I know it's top of mind for you, but give the audience a little yeah. bit of a taste of the situation and then what you see as, I guess, solutions or steps to actually place these now young adults into proper care so that they can have a quality life or go on to education. Yeah. Again, this is another collaboration between MCLC and the community. Yep. There are a few organizations in the Detroit area in the tri-county area who are really fighting for this issue. There's also a former legislator, Sherry Gay, that now go, I hate to drop all these names, but in case somebody knows them, you can call oh, me sure. <laughs> and sure. say, hey, yeah. I want to help you with that. I want. I have an idea for that. I have a resource for that. And because these kids really need help. 
So if they come in at 14 years old, they are entitled to receive certain services called youth in transition services. But the problem, the challenge that we have within the court system is that a lot of social workers who should know what those services are and how to implement them don't know. I won't say a lot, some. They don't implement them. So the children, so that means the lawyer needs to know and the jurist needs to know and somebody needs to know that this child is entitled to a laptop during COVID right. when they can't go in school or they shouldn't do their work on their phone. These are our clients. They Somebody needs to find a laptop so this child can be successful in school. So at 14, they start receiving these services. And then if it looks like they're going to age out at 16, they are entitled to go into an independent living program. Children who are, are independent enough, as, as you can, independent as you can be at 16 years old, can go into a home. And this is what I would like your listeners to, to know, mm -hmm. is that when you, you have an older child in your home, you don't need a foster care license. All you need is a room and to be able, you don't even have to nurture them if you don't want to. They just need a home. They need a place to live until they turn, until they get out of the court system. And that is, that's a need that the foster care system has. I think that's something that is a, it's not a quick fix, but it's something that if people knew about, they might provide it. Right. They need the ability to get driver's license. They don't have a car to practice with. Sure. Uh, college students need a place to go when they leave college for the summer. Our kids come, my kids came home during Christmas break, Easter break, that kind of thing. Foster kids, unless they're at a college that is helping them with that, which most colleges don't, they need a place to go. So just a room, even as a respite, a place when everybody else is going home and the dorm is closed, yep. can I come to your house for this short period of time? Older foster kids, there's so many areas that people can help in, but older foster kids get the bad, they get have a bad reputation because people think they're juvenile justice kids and they're trouble and they're criminals and that kind of thing. And that's not the case. Juvenile justice kids get a bad rep too, but foster children don't even have anything to do with that. So we need to just band together to support these children. That's what MCLC is trying to do is to bridge the gap yep. between them leaving the court system and becoming independent, which my children, if they need something, they can call me. So are they really independent? Someone uh, actually put it this way. We're all interdependent on each other, even as we're adults. Sure. So they need, they should have that. Anyway. Absolutely. And I think part of that bridging process, I think, is part of this foster parent forums that you do with the FCC and others. Can you talk about that for a yes. second? Oh, absolutely. We were connected with FCC by, of course, Kate Thornson, and we go to, we created forums so that we would have a foster parent, a agency worker from the Department of Health and Human Services, a lawyer and possibly a child who is aged out of the system come together on a panel to answer questions and give information about what it's like to become a foster parent. The goal was to recruit foster parents, but we also recognize that everybody is not equipped to become a foster parent, but they do want to help. Yeah. So we still do we still do those. We had one last summer. It was focused on mentoring older youth because it was COVID and people weren't really thinking about fostering it at that time. Right. It was hard to get people to get licensed because you could nobody could come into your house. Right. So we are we're still focused on that wholeheartedly. If anybody wants us to arrange a foster uh care or foster parent recruitment program, then they can contact us and we can definitely talk about it. Okay. That. Okay, great. No, I think that's important for sure. Finally, I know it's no one likes to talk but as far as an organization, but 
you need funds to operate your facility or your organization and support your 12 attorneys. Do have a donation tab on your website. I'm going to provide the link in to that tab on the show notes next week when we send out the, the podcast. But talk about just a little bit about what any donation would go toward and what those funds would be used for, please. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for that opportunity. We got we received the CARES Act grant last summer during, from the Wayne County Executive. Executive. And we were really, oh gosh, we did. We were able to do a lot with the money that we received. And um, most of it went toward families who were just in need. Our families consist of relatives who, whose family member got into a little bit of trouble. And now their nieces and their nephews have nowhere to go, but they don't have any money to take them in. The state over the last three or four years has, has recognized that relatives should also receive a foster parents, the same stipend that the foster parents get, which isn't a lot when you're raising kids. The foster parent, this is not a place where you get rich. But if I take in, if you take in four of your nephews and it's overnight, you need resources. Sure. And that's where we like to step in and help our families, our relatives who are taking in our clients or taking in foster children. And we don't have the resources for that. That's what the money, that's what we use the money for the CARES Act. Children who needed the laptops that I was talking about, the printers so that they could be successful in school. The ones, the kids grow. We all know kids grow like weeds. Foster parents, relatives, and kids, the children themselves, they get less, I want to say $500 a year. It may be, I think it's less. I think I'm being generous uh, for the children, for clothes, school supplies, everything. We help our clients with backpacks, school supplies, and this is through donations. The donations help us make sure that our clients are okay because they didn't ask to be here, particularly the foster children. They didn't ask to be removed from from their homes. My children are going to school with decent clothes. They're going to have, the hair is not going to be looking like they don't have someone taking care of them. And our foster children don't deserve that either. They should not be in school being teased because they don't, they, they don't have the resources to do what other children are doing. And I'm not talking about the Nikes and being all fancy with a hundred dollar gym shoes. We're not doing that, but we don't want our clients to be in a less position than other people's children when they go to school or they're in the community we want them to go to extracurricular activities we have music classes that we pay for if we have clients who qualify to go it, but that comes through donations okay so the donations help us a lot and i really appreciate you bringing that absolutely up. so in conclusion i want to pledge to all of our third act listeners to uh, really give that a thought and look at the website and become more familiar with what the MCLC is doing. And you just heard the fine words of Linda and what they're uh, doing. Roger, thank you for what you're doing. This is fabulous. Thank you for listening to the Third Act Podcast. To find out more about who we are spotlighting, how to get involved, or find show notes on today's episode, go to wearethirdact.com. With my third